0: Section twenty seven of Monologues. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Monologues by Richard Middleton. Poets and Critics. When a short time ago I came across a book by the poet laureate entitled The Bridling of Pegasus, I confess that the title alarmed me. I do not want the present century to capture the winged horse. I should be sorry to see poor Pegasus munching gilded oats at a banquet of the Poetry Society. Nor do I wish to find his photograph among the grinning actresses in the illustrated papers. But an examination of Mr. Austin's book soon reassured me he has not bridled pegasus he has not even succeeded in harnessing Rosinante, but by a natural error he has hung his bridle on to a spotted wooden steed of great age that served perhaps to amuse some of our less considerable poets in their infancy mr Austin's criticism is as individual as his poetry and far more stimulating i do not think that any poet could read the bridling of pegasus without being roused to passionate anger it is as though a village schoolmaster had paid a weekend visit to the foot of the parnassus and had embodied his miscomprehension of what he had seen in the form of a series of lectures to his apple-cheeked pupils here you have the condescension the assertive ignorance the occasional smirking humor let the little boys write on their slates Mr. Austin's assertion that Byron is the greatest English poet since Milton, and let them add that Mr. Austin is the most irritating critic since Remus. One of these statements is true. It is too late in the day to review the bridling of Pegasus, but it suggests the fitness of some inquiry into the relationship between poets and critics it is of course as natural for critics to dislike the work of young and adventurous poets as it is for poets to dislike the writings of aged and sophisticated critics for critics of all men who work in words love to support themselves on those mysterious crutches known as canons of art which any new poet worthy of the name promptly sends flying with the spirit of his winged foot this is not to say that the canons of art, the artillery of small bore, may not have certain value for critics. But poets, when they fall to criticizing their comrades, are usually content to rely on their individual judgments rather than to appeal to any universal theory of greatness in poetry. And considered dispassionately, it would be easy to support the view that critics select their canons of art to justify their preferences that they formed when their minds were still receptive and unhardened by the inhuman task of criticism to take a handful of poets at random it seems impossible to lay down any one theory of poetry that will support the undeniable greatness of herrick burns blake keats browning swinburne and meredith and it may be noted that the laureate who writes as a critic and not as a poet while treating of poetry from the academic standpoint does not dare this ultimate adventure he is content to arrange poetry in classes and assure us that reflective poetry is greater than lyrical and that epic poetry is the greatest of all even if we are to accept these dogmatic assertions i can imagine no sane reader of poetry regulating his preferences by doctrine of this kind to mr Austin the comparative popularity of lyrical poetry is a matter for keen regret to me so far does personal prejudice count in these matters it is a healthy sign since it suggests that those who read poetry to-day do so for pleasure rather than from a sense of duty but if for no other reason I would mistrust Mr. Austin's canons on account of the extraordinary conclusions to which they lead him. Probably most foreigners would agree with Mr. Austin that Byron is the greatest English poet since Milton. But poetry is the one possession that a nation cannot share with its fellows, and the countrymen of Keats and Shelley, of Browning and Swinburne, must perforce keep the enjoyment of their rarer inheritance to themselves nor do his canons help mr Austin to fare better on smaller points thus when he wrote that no poet of much account is ever obscure he had clearly forgotten browning blake and the shakespeare of the sonnets the sonnets are occasionally obscure because in them shakespeare is expressing very intricate and subtle emotions quite beyond the range of ordinary lovers browning is obscure because his mind was an overcrowded museum in which his thoughts could not turn round without knocking freakish ornaments and exotic images off the shelves blake was obscure as wordsworth was often inane through trusting too much to inspiration great poetry is not obscure but the ranks of the great poets supply exceptions to all generalizations again mr austin finds it strange that two such great poets as dante and milton should suffer from a total lack of humour this opens up a fruitful field of speculation but probably this deficiency is the rule rather than the exception coleridge wordsworth keats shelley blake tennyson and swinburne all lacked it though some of these poets tried to be funny at times browning had a sense of humour but it may be doubted whether it did his poetry any good shakespeare had enough humour for fifty men of letters but he had everything mr alfred austin has not a sense of humour though he sometimes indulges a cumbrous spirit of gaiety that recalls mr pecksniff in his moments of relaxation no i do not believe in canons of art save if you will of a vague and ineffective character that leaves artists free to do what they like. Nevertheless, the school of criticism to which Mr. Austin belongs, being powerful these days, I think it would be a goodly task to prepare a list of aphorisms to hang by the bedside of critics of poetry. Mine would be something like this. 1. A good critic is a man who likes good work and by dint of his enthusiasm is empowered to perform miracles teaching the blind to see and the deaf to hear two there are two kinds of poetry good and bad minor poetry is a phrase used by incompetent critics who dare not oppose their judgment to the possible contradiction of posterity three to artists who can treat them greatly all times and all truths are equal. A poet of the first order raises all subjects to the first rank. Swinburne. 4. If the poet's intellect gives power and direction to his work, his emotions supply the force that creates it. With most men, the emotions become exhausted or sophisticated at a comparatively early age. Hence, most poets have done their best work when they were young. Five, the aphorism that poets are born and not made is merely an untruthful expression of the fact that not every one can become a poet by taking pains it would hardly be excessive to say that the first task of every artist is to create his own genius it is our misfortune that most artists have neglected to do this six poets who try to teach in song have derived small benefit from their suffering seven we have all endured the man who sings because he must there is something to be said for the man who sings because he can eight the wise critic will always approach poetry on his knees even though he ends by sitting on it nine bad poetry is not nearly so harmful as bad criticism of poetry and so on it would be possible to fill a number of pages with such things without saving one critic from the quenchless flames the only sane method by which to become a good critic of poetry is to love poetry that is why professor saintsbury's history of english prosody seems to me to be a great book i think he has the most catholic appreciation of poetry that any man not excluding the poets themselves can ever have achieved, and he is free from the poet's inevitable prejudices. The first volume may be skimmed over advantageously by anyone not specially interested in prosody as a science, but the second and third volumes should be read and re-read by all lovers of English poetry. Such a critic may well reconcile poets to criticism and this brings me to the vexed question of the utility of critics it seems to me clear that critics can be of little service to men of genius or even to artists of real ability but as middlemen between artists and the general public they are unhappily necessary it is often forgotten how far the reading public today is dependent on the critics to tell it how many of the monstrous multitude of new books are worth reading poetry is very badly treated by the press in general because there is no money in it and the daily newspapers prefer to devote their literary columns to reviews of novels written in batches of six by elderly unmarried ladies between breakfast and lunch but it must be added that the bulk of the criticism of new poetry that does appear in the periodical press is surprisingly well done the only pity is that there is not more of it End of section 27.